0: In the 1950s, the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America commissioned a journalist and a historian to write a history of the American labor movement. Published in 1955, the book Labor's Untold Story was a massive success despite the anti-communist hysteria of the day. In the book, they described the transition from the promise of reconstruction to what would become the Gilded Age.
1: There were small warnings of the great disaster coming, But for the most part, they were ignored. Agricultural prices were down, wages were falling, but dividends were firm, and everyone knew that endless expansion and ever greater prosperity were a permanent characteristic of the American way. To speak of possible panic or coming depression was unpatriotic. To the naked eye, the country seemed flourishing enough. Miners were digging coal and copper. Iron manufacturers were planning to build huge steel mills. The granaries of the nation were bulging with wheat and corn. Factories were humming with activity, and then suddenly there was paralysis. The life and death, which is a depression in an industrial society, was heralded by the closing on September eighteenth, eighteen seventy-three, of the greatest banking house of J. Cook and Co. Then came the lean years. Six long and terrible years, the textile factory whose very floors and windows had shaken with endless vibrations of its clacking loom was now silent. Many mines were now but empty holes in which a shout echoed eerily away. Plows rusted in dusty fields and harvesters stood motionless and unused. By 1877, there were as many as three million unemployed, It was estimated that at least one-fifth of the nation's working force would never again be on payroll. Would never again be on a payroll. As conditions deepened, anger continued to rise. There were textile and coal strikes in 1874 and 1875. And as the militancy of the workers increased, employers began to worry. Individuals working through the Republican Party began preparing for a new offensive against the trade union movement. Their first move was to gain a new ally for themselves while denying it to labor. Republicans lived in fear that labor, making common cause with restive farmers, would resurrect the Democratic Party and turn all Republicans out and, worse still, reverse their profit-breeding policies. To avert this, they decided to make they decided to make the Southern planters their allies instead of their opponents. The army that had garrisoned the South was soon to be withdrawn and thrown against the Northern workers on strike against Depression wage cuts. The Negroes, in the meantime, were left to the mercies of their ex-masters. Under the new alliance, the Democratic Party in the South became, to a large extent, an appendage of the Republican Party in the North at least economically, its platforms usually as conservative and as lacking in menace to the wealthy as those of Republicans themselves. Popular movements were being broken both North and South, separately and without either popular force aiding the other. Their enemies combined, but the people's movements did not. The Republicans had abandoned the Negroes in the South to better deal with the rising protests in the North. Thus, it was that Negroes were being murdered in Columbia and Spartanburg, South Carolina, in Livingston, Alabama, and Greggs County, Texas, as troops were being called out against Massachusetts textile workers and Pennsylvania miners fighting through the country's severest depression.
0: to Ending the Myth. I'm Brian.
1: And I'm Munya.
0: And we are continuing our journey through American history with the help of Greg Grandin's book, Ending the Myth, or The End of the Myth. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> L- like we said, we, we have superseded the book and now yep. it's just, you know, it's hard to remember what came first at this point, <laughs> You know? Uh, today, we're going to bring you our lovely audience, part one of a two-parter. Uh, where we're going to be discussing the conditions of the working class at the turn of the century.
1: Yeah, The collapse of Reconstruction marked a period of intense political reaction and retrenchment in American history. What would become known as the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era is better seen as a counter-revolution, successfully carried out in courthouses, legislatures, and boardrooms by the American capitalist class. On the ground, it was brought about at the barrel of a gun, and importantly, at the end of a rope. As historian Sven Beckert notes, While freed people, with their very limited social power, were left alone to preserve their civil rights, powerful northern bourgeois demanded federal intervention to protect their property from strikers. Unregulated property rights, if necessary, defended by the police if necessary, defended by the policing power of the federal government against the claims of other social groups, were now at the center of bourgeois discourse and politics.
0: Historian Philip Foner describes the year 1877, quote: All over the country, employers shared the glee of the mining and railroad companies of Pennsylvania. During the years when textile workers and miners were suffering serious setbacks, The progressive governments in the South were being overthrown and replaced by governments dominated by planters and industrialists. With good reason, the Commerce and Financial Chronicle could report to Northern capitalists anxious to invest in the South that conditions were ideal for, quote, This year, 1877, labor is under control for the first time since the war. He then goes on to describe the condition of workers, quote, the railroad workers had felt the impact of the Depression as keenly as any group of working men in the country. Their wages had been cut steadily until average weekly earnings amounted to 5 to $10 a week. Irregular employment reduced their wage still more. Men with families were permitted to work only three or four days a week, most of which time had to be spent away from the home at their own expense. After paying a dollar a day to the company's hotel, they frequently returned with as little as 35 or 40 cents. To make matters even worse, the men often had to wait two, three, or even four months for wages, which were supposed to be paid monthly.
1: Tom Scott's Pennsylvania Railroad had reported net earnings of $22 million in 1876. Scott, who was referred to as King Scott in Pennsylvania had been a key player in whipping up support for Rutherford B. Hayes in the Hayes-Tilden Compromise that ended Reconstruction. Scott had urged Southern congressmen to swing towards Hayes in exchange for the promise of extending railroad construction in the South. King Scott made his own deal with Hayes, receiving $312 million in U.S. bonds after the election was finalized. With labor defeated and railroad capital ascendant, Scott felt untouchable. In May of 1877, he boldly announced another 10% cut in wages of workers on the Pennsylvania Railroad.
0: Workers on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad responded to the wage cut by stopping freight trains around the city of Baltimore. Police were called in to break the strike. The Baltimore Sun described the scene, quote, The singular part of the disturbances is the very active part taken by the women, are the wives and the mothers of the firemen firemen in this case being railway workers they look famished and wild and declare for starvation rather than have their people work for the reduced wages better to starve outright they say than to die by slow starvation
1: over the month of july the strike spread railroad workers in martinsburg west virginia shut down all freight moving through the city When the mayor had the leaders of the strike arrested, a crowd rushed the jail, freeing them. Miners from all over West Virginia poured into the city to protect the strikers. Black railroad workers in Kaiser, West Virginia, voted to join the strike, fulfilling the worst fears of the American capitalist class, a multiracial labor strike. In Louisville, Kentucky, black sewer men went on strike. They marched throughout the streets, shouting for people to join them. Before night, wrote a local journalist, there were several hundred, including some whites. Pittsburgh, Scranton, St. Louis, and Chicago soon joined the fray. It was a spontaneous uprising of more than 100,000 workers against the labor conditions being imposed upon them.
0: Newspaper headlines showed the level of panic among America's capitalist class. A serious time in Chicago, the city in possession of communists, wrote the New York Times. Pittsburgh sacked the city completely in power of devilish spirit of communism, wrote the New York World. It is wrong to call this a strike. It is a labor revolution, said the St. Louis Republican.
1: Yeah, as if that's a bad thing. (laughs)
0: Yeah, (laughs) if only, you know. (laughs) Historian Philip Boner notes, quote, Newspapers, clergymen, and public officials vehemently declared that the strike was another Paris commune, an insurrection, a revolution, an attempt of communists and vagabonds to coerce society, an endeavor to undermine American institutions.
1: The strikers themselves did not have a particularly large communist contingent among them, and to the extent that there were, their communist politics were most likely derived from homegrown exploitation than nefarious foreign agents. But the tactic of painting working class struggle as something foreign to the United States was tried and true. Slave plots uncovered in Virginia in 1800 were labeled as the work of outside agitators. In this case, mischievous French Jacobins intent on importing importing European ideologies into pastoral America. When New York tailors tried to form a union and go on strike in 1836, the judge hearing their case held that unions are, quote, of foreign origin, and I am led to believe mainly upheld by foreigners while ruling against the workers. In 1857, on the eve of the Civil War, pro-slavery evangelist George Fitzhugh declared, quote, We warn the North not that, we warn the North that, Every one of the leading abolitionists is agitating the Negro slavery question as a means to attain their ulterior ends, socialism and communism. No private property, no church, no law, free love, free land, free woman, and free children.
0: Sounds dope. (laughs) (laughs) imagine yelling that out and thinking that you're on the right side of
1: that yeah <laughs> And th- that's what always shocks me is they just say it it's like if you just say it out loud maybe you i don't know like,
0: <laughs> just have a change it, of the a opinion guys. just like
1: yeah oh uh-huh
0: <laughs> in the case of what would become known as the great 1877 railroad strike These accusations of foreign elements in the railroad preaching alien ideologies would be deployed in the same way as in the examples above, as a cover for the use of massive state violence against the population. In Baltimore, John Garrett, president of the B&O, dispersed state militia to Cumberland and Baltimore to put down the strike. Militia mustering in Baltimore fired into the crowds supporting the strikers, killing 12 and wounding many more. Quote, The determined temper of the soldiers, wrote the New York Times, is evinced by the circumstance that all the men killed were shot through the head or the heart. Every part of this was pure fantasy. The soldiers, faced with a crowd of thousands, had panicked and just fired into the crowd at random. Among the dead were women and children, but the media wanted blood. The New York Herald declared, The mob is a wild beast and needs to be shot down. The New York Sun advocated a diet of lead for the hungry strikers.
1: In Chicago, the mayor had a cavalry contingent charge the crowd of strike supporters. Chopping at the crowd with their swords, they killed 12 while wounding dozens more. In Pennsylvania, King Scott had the state militia stationed in Philadelphia brought in to break the Pittsburgh strike. Confident that these soldiers, raised in the ease and comfort of one of the financial capitals of the country, would shoot down the workers in Pittsburgh without question. Upon entering the city, the militia carried out a massacre, killing 20 people and wounding dozens more. A grand jury would later come to the conclusion that this was, quote, an unauthorized, willful, and wanton killing, which the inquest can call no other name but murder. Workers reacted by arming themselves with weapons from local gun stores and and chased the militia out of town forcing them to take shelter in a stone roundhouse. That night, workers began pushing flaming cars full with oil and pitch into the roundhouse, forcing the militia to leave the city. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: (laughs) President Rutherford B. Hayes would ultimately call on federal troops to protect the railroad interests. Units making war on the Sioux people in the West were brought back east to occupy Chicago and St. Louis. In the end, an estimated 200 people were killed in clashes with police, state militias, and federal troops.
1: The Great Railroad Strike was at its heart a class war. In St. Louis, merchants raised $20,000 to arm a militia of 1,000 men. The St. Louis Gun Club provided shotguns, and merchants donated 5,000 muskets. In New York City, the 7th Regiment, a militia made up of Manhattan socialites, bankers, and merchants, It a meal catered to Delmonico's on, quote, the finest French China and cut glass as they mustered for an uprising that never came. Sorry, when they say Manhattan socialized, are you talking like like Ivanka Trump, like the people who are just like, you know, like partiers? Literally
0: the like wealthy merchants of Manhattan. (laughs) Whoa.
1: Whoa. Wow.
0: I, I meant to like send you on a mission to go look at their armory. So after this, essentially, they they decide they need to like uh, they got to muscle up a little bit, you know. So they build this like enormous armory in Manhattan that looks like a fucking castle, but inside it's furnished entirely by Tiffany's, and, like, it, <laughs> because of course, you know. Yeah, uh, of course. And it's still there. I'll have to, I'll, I'll get the uh, location that's a flex. It. And, yeah, you gotta respect you go that. Check it out. Yeah, And it looks like a castle because the whole point of it was it was between the wealthy area of Manhattan and the poor area of Manhattan. And that was like where they would make their like Alamo stand and like shoot at the pores out of their little castle keyholes.
1: That is yeah, so crazy. incredible. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah when you look at it it's like clearly defensive but you wonder like for who it's in the middle of the city like yeah, you know, yeah. it's like oh for the people of the city that for the people the, the residents of the city <laughs> yeah, who live there
1: there's such, like the irish uh mural where the gun is just like pointed at you the viewer
0: <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> basically <laughs> so for workers there was little gain from the strike promised wage increases and decreased working hours were rescinded the second federal troops arrived in st louis pittsburgh and baltimore what workers did gain was the realization that the rail network that was bringing america into the modern era could be disrupted and even halted by militant labor action that despite the size and strength of american capital the power that workers had at the point of production remained immense In 1886, 200,000 railway workers would go on strike across Arkansas, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, and Texas. In 1894, a quarter million railway workers would take part in the Pullman strike, raising Eugene Debs to prominence as a working class leader. Likewise, the 1919 Great Steel Strike saw 350,000 workers go on strike and brought William Z. Foster to prominence in the American left.
1: The Great Railroad Strike was the sounding bell of a class war that would rage at varying levels of intensity for the next 100 years. As Philip Foner notes, quote, the American capitalists drew a lesson from the national strike wave. They saw the importance of a militia controlled by wealthy men, a larger standing army, and more and better armories. During the next few years, the militia in several states was centralized, more armories strategically built and conspiracy laws enacted against the trade unions
0: yeah and it's worth noting this is basically when the national guard like really comes into existence there was something called the national guard prior to that but like its current formation is from the railroad strike it was built to kill american workers essentially.
1: yeah and that's that's it's it is like very you know f- interesting and it piques my interest that like uh You know, during the Black Lives Matter protests for for George Floyd um, and Breonna Taylor, where, uh, you know, when police were losing control, the National Guard came in. Right. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really necessarily. I mean, I I heard some people say, oh, the National Guard is trying to basically like settle the conflict between people and police. But really, that's like the next step from when a local (laughs) police precinct is like, you know, losing control is National Guard comes in, too
0: yeah they are traditionally the police's reinforcements uh yep. you know, and also you know if you live in a city that's old enough uh you should go check go buy your local armory and see when it was built uh most of them in america were built like 1880 to about 1910 <laughs> and there's a reason why <laughs> yeah uh, also, if you go find where your armory is, you can almost always tell where, at the turn of the 20th century, where the poor population was and the wealthy population was. Because armories are almost always put on the demarcating line between them to essentially guard from one going into the other neighborhood.
1: Yeah, so it's like literally like fortifying like a rich neighborhood.
0: Yep, exactly. So labor militancy was met with extreme violence. To give just some brief examples, a demonstration for the eight-hour day in Chicago in 1886 led the state to execute four labor leaders in retaliation. The aftermath of what became known as the Haymarket Affair led the international labor movement to declare May first a day of solidarity for labor. In 1897, a minor strike uh, in 1897, a miner strike in Latimer, Pennsylvania, was met with machine guns from a posse rounded up by the sheriff. When They tried to march into town. 19 were killed and dozens more were injured. In 1914, John D. Rockefeller Jr. personally ordered the murder of dozens of striking miners in Ludlow, Colorado. Police, State National Guard, and private militia set on the miners' camp at night, setting fire to the miners' tents and then machine gunning them down when they tried to flee. The majority of the dead were children who were burned alive in a bunker that the miners' wives had built to protect them from the nightly gunfire that Rockefeller's men fired into the camp. This would become known as the Ludlow Massacre. By the way, we could keep going. We could talk about the Everett Massacre. We could talk, I mean, this just goes and goes and goes. This is like it,
1: Everett, Everett, Washington?
0: Yep. Wow. Yeah, and, and Everett, and I believe it was 1917, a group of Seattle unionists were going to Everett via a ferry to support a uh, a, wood, uh, uh, a lumber worker strike there. And the sheriff, very similar to here, uh, alerted by the police in Seattle, by the way, that the strikers were coming <laughs> and what ferry they were on, uh, raised a posse. And as the ferry was approaching the dock, they just lit the fucking ferry up.
1: Holy shit.
0: Killed a bunch of people. Yeah. On what was, uh, the ship was called the Verona, and uh, yeah, incredible. Uh, the ferry, of course, immediately tried to turn back and go to Seattle. When it arrived at dock in Seattle, the Seattle police then arrested the strikers.
1: Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so the ferry was on fire, and they turned the ferry around to like go back?
0: Oh, by lit up, I mean they just... Fired on it with their guns. Oh, okay, okay, they just got shot you, the got shit you out, out of it, yeah, got you, but yeah. Got you. Okay. I think they end up killing like the ferry captain and stuff, yeah. I mean, it, like, barely makes it back to Seattle. Jesus it's, it's, Christ, it was not a uh, you know, it was not seaworthy at that point, <laughs> a lot of holes, yeah. but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but these things were extremely common at the time. I mean, the ba- the battle of Blair Mountain, the ba- I mean, like, just in coal country alone, you know, probably a couple of thousand dead, killed by you know, cops national guard uh private militias hired by the company etc
1: the violence visited upon striking workers reached particularly vicious levels when it was black workers who were striking a strike involving black cane workers in louisiana in 1887 led to an orgy of violence that left at least 60 dead an all-white militia made up of local planters and police and under the command of Confederate General PGT Beauregard, was organized to break the strike. A sheriff's posse gunned down the strikers marching in St. Mary. In Bayou LaForche, the militia launched a bayonet charge against a group of striking workers. All over the area, planters led all over the area, planters led militiamen door to door to kill workers that they found troublesome. Two came workers identified as the strike's leaders were captured and then lynched in Thibodeau. The bodies of the dead were dumped in unmarked graves. All while, local newspapers justified the violence by publishing fantastical stories of a black crime wave. Yeah, that <sighs> doesn't sound familiar at all.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing how things change over time, right? <laughs> yeah. The violence against these cane workers was indicative of the violence being meted out against black people all over the South as the counter-revolution against reconstruction reached full steam. Historian Leon Litwack describes the lynching of Georgian farmhand Sam Hose in 1899, Quote, some 2000 men and women witnessed it on a Sunday afternoon in Newman, Georgia. Some of them arriving from Atlanta on special excursion trains. After stripping Hose of his clothes and chaining him to a tree, the self-appointed executioners stacked kerosene-soaked wood high around him. Before saturating Hose with oil and applying the torch, they cut off his ears, fingers, and genitals and skinned his face. While some in the crowd plunged knives into the victim's flesh, others watched with unfeigning satisfaction, as one reporter noted, the contortions of Sam Hose's body as the flames rose, distorting his features, causing his eyes to bulge out of their sockets, and rupturing his veins. When in Hose's agony, he almost managed to unloosen his bonds, the executioners quenched the flames, retied him, and applied more oil to the body before relighting the fire. Such suffering, reported one newspaper, has seldom been witnessed. The only sounds that came from the victim's lips, even as his blood sizzled in the fire, were, Oh my God, oh Jesus. Before Hose's body had even cooled, his heart and liver were removed, and cut into several pieces, and his bones were crushed into small particles. The crowd fought over these souvenirs, and the more fortunate possessors made some handsome profits on the sales. Small pieces of bones went for 25 cents. A piece of the liver, quote, crisply cooked, sold for 10 cents. Shortly after the lynching, one of the participants reportedly left for the state capitol, hoping to deliver to the governor of Georgia a slice of Sam Hose's heart.
1: There were 4,425 documented lynchings in America between 1877 and 1950. The actual number is likely at least twice that. And at this point, I think it is important to clarify what a lynching is. A lynching is not simply a racially motivated murder. It is a public spectacle of violence. People from all around would come unmasked, unconcerned to view these horrific acts. Leon Litwack explains, quote, The mob execution of a black man, woman, or family was not only a public spectacle, but also public theater, often a festive affair, a participatory ritual of torture and death that many whites preferred to witness rather than read about. Newspapers on a number of occasions announced in advance the time and the place of a lynching with such colorful headlines as, quote, Negro jerky and Solon as burnings our nears. Special excursion trains transported spectators to the scene. Employers sometimes released their workers to attend. Parents sent notes to school asking teachers to excuse their children for the event. And entire families attended. The children hoisted on their parents' shoulders to miss none of the action and accompanying festivities. These public spectacles of violence were meant to imprint themselves onto a community. They were a forceful assertion of a new politics, a new culture, and a new way of being. They were to act as an eraser of history, a way to permanently remove the egalitarian promise of Reconstruction by annihilating social bonds that could make that promise a reality. As a result, the violence of these events had to be exemplary. Litwack describes, quote, What was strikingly new and different in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries was the sadism and exhibitionism that characterized white violence. The ordinary modes of execution and punishment were deemed insufficient. They no longer satisfied the emotional appetite of the crowd. To kill the victim was not enough. The execution needed to be turned into a public ritual a collective experience, and the victim needed to be subjected to extraordinary torture and mutilation. These public rituals were designed to reconfigure the racial and economic order of the South. It is not a coincidence that the inciting incident that led to Sam Hose being so brutally murdered was his demanding unpaid back wages from a local planter.
0: When discussed at all, This orgy of violence is usually portrayed as a product of mob violence, a bloodlust of ignorant Southerners fueled purely by racism. But a closer examination reveals that lynching was an activity promoted, allowed, and participated in by the finest men in every community. The Atlanta Constitution described those that participated in the murder of Sam Hose as, quote, conservative, the descendants of ancestors who have been trained in America for 150 years. They are a people intensely religious, home-loving, and just. There is among them no foreign or lawless element. His execution was even praised by the state's governor. A Mississippi newspaper described the lynching of Elmer Curl in 1910 as, quote, a most orderly affair conducted by the bankers, lawyers, farmers, and merchants of that county. The best people of the county, as good as there are anywhere, simply met there and hanged Curl without a sign of rowdyism. There was no drinking, no shooting, no yelling, and not even any loud talking. Similar accounts from South Carolina and Texas report prominent citizens at their own local lynchings. Even in the case of the 1887 cane workers' strike in Louisiana, participants in the reactionary violence against the strikers included sugar planter Andrew Price, who won a congressional seat following the events, and future Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Edward Douglas White. Far from being the work of ignorant Southern crackers, the terror regime that became known as Jim Crow is better understood as the naked rule of the capitalist class in America. In short, it was fascism.
1: The implementation of a racist terror regime in the South had an immediate and deleterious impact on the labor movement. Upon its formation in 1881... The American Federation of Labor encouraged the organizing of black workers and refused to admit national affiliates that barred blacks from joining. This was not a position taken out of the goodness of their hearts. The AFL was not about to create a white ally solidarity committee, but out of necessity. As the United Mine Workers noted in 1891, quote, Take the Negro out of the organization and you have a vast army against you, one that is strong enough to be felt and feared. Hard-won experience had taught many labor organizers that racism and segregation only made it easier to break strikes, and that solidarity was a worker's only chance. In
0: 1890, Samuel Gompers and the AFL refused to grant the National Association of Machinists a delegate at their national convention because of a clause in the machinist constitution that barred black workers the afl went so far as to order the building of a rival union to the machinists quote based on the principles which recognize the equality of all men working at our trade regardless of religion race or color in order to bring them in line as samuel gompers argued quote if our fellow white wage worker will not allow the colored worker to cooperate with him, He will necessarily cling to the other hand, that of the employer, who also smites him, but at least recognizes his right to work. If we do not make friends of the colored men, they will of necessity be justified in proving themselves our enemies. I wish the slogan would come forth among the toilers of the South, working men organize, regardless of color.
1: But under the pressure of the Jim Crow regime being instituted across the South and the rest of the country in different regalia, this labor solidarity could not hold. As Philip Foner notes, By 1893, affiliated unions were balking under the fraternal wand. Gomper's position was that competition with black workers could be eliminated only by bringing Negroes into labor unions. White skilled workers in the organized trades and their leaders, on the other hand, contended that the competition had to be ended by excluding blacks from their union and from the labor market. The Depression of 1893 made matters worse, with unemployment hitting 43% in states like Michigan. White workers were lured by Jim Crow to press their racial advantage in employment. In 1894, The dispute with the machinists was resolved when the International Association of Machinists, IAM, was brought into the AFL with full rights after moving the clause banning black members from their constitution to their initiation ritual. Foner concludes, By the turn of the century, Federation officials were no longer bothering to insist that discriminatory unions no longer conceal the practice to gain admittance. In 1913, W.E.B. Du Bois would comment on the AFL's new policy regarding the race and connect it to the revanchist violence in the country. Quote, The net result of all this has been to convince the American Negro that his greatest enemy is not the employer who robs him, but his fellow white working man. White northern laborers find killing Negroes a safe, lucrative employment which commends them to the American Federation of Labor.
0: Much like with the institution of slavery or with westward expansion, this violence and terrorism on the ground was codified within the legal structure of the country from above. During the Gilded Age, the Supreme Court played its traditional role of pulling the other branches of government back to a more conservative direction when they went too far. The court began interpreting the 14th Amendment, passed presumably for racial equality, in a way that made it impotent for that purpose. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 outlawed discrimination against Black people using public facilities. In 1883, it was nullified by the Supreme Court, which said, quote, individual invasion of individual rights is not the subject matter of the 14th Amendment. They used the words no state shall to narrowly reinterpret the amendment as applying only to the actions of the government rendering private discrimination based on race legal. In 1890, Mississippi passed a new constitution that was packed with Jim Crow goodies like restrictions on the franchise. The court and Congress did nothing, encouraging the rest of the South to follow Mississippi's lead. In 1896, the Supreme Court gave its official blessing to Jim Crow with its ruling in Plessy v. Ferguson, where it ruled that, quote, the object of the 14th Amendment was undoubtedly to enforce the absolute equality of the two races before the law, but in the nature of things, it could not have been intended to abolish distinctions based upon color or to enforce social, as distinguished from political, equality, or a co-mingling of the two races upon terms unsatisfactory to either.
1: The federal government refused to enforce the 15th Amendment after Reconstruction ended, Despite the massive and open violation of voting rights in the South, despite the federal government's obligation to enforce the law under the Supremacy Clause of Article 6 of the Constitution, Congress and the executive consistently deferred to those states on the issue of voting rights. This was part of a 90-year trend in allowing Southern states to flagrantly disregard federal laws passed during Reconstruction and pursue their own policies regarding race and repression. It is, in fact, this post-Reconstruction phenomenon that is behind the myth of the Southern fight for states' rights.
0: Ultimately, the 14th Amendment was turned from a law protecting black civil rights into a law expanding corporate rights. In the 1886 case Santa Clara County versus Southern Pacific Railroad, the court used the 14th Amendment to grant corporations the right of individual persons. From this point on, the 14th Amendment cases heard by courts were almost entirely in reference to corporate rights.
1: By ignoring Jim Crow, the federal government was making it very clear that black people existed outside of the protection of the American state. In 1901, white residents of Pierce City, Missouri, lynched a black man that they had accused of attacking a white woman. That night, the same residents turned their anger to the 200 or so black people who lived in town black residents were ordered to leave the town or else. Some of their houses were burned for emphasis, killing two people. By 2 a.m., the black residents that once made up 10% of the town's population were gone. Some of these refugees had no doubt been residents of nearby Monette when the town expelled its black population in 1895. Some refugees made their way to Joplin, where in 1903... White residents rioted and expelled them again. The white residents that remained in Pierce City gladly took over their homes of their former neighbors. That, I mean, that eerily sounds a lot like what they're doing like in uh, in Palestine right now, what Israel, Israeli <laughs> yeah. settlers do in Palestine.
0: Yep. Uh, it eerily sounds like what happened in New Orleans as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, disgusting. Pierce City had become a sundown town. What took place there took place in thousands of cities and towns all over the country between 1890 and 1950. A New York Times article from 1902 tells of one such incident. Quote, the last Negro has left Decatur, Indiana. His departure was caused by the anti-Negro feeling. About a month ago, a mob of 50 men drove out all the Negroes who were then making that city their home. Since that time, the feeling against the Negro race has been intense, so much so that an anti-Negro society has been organized. The colored man who has just left came about three weeks ago, and since that time received many threatening letters. When he appeared on the streets, he was insulted and jeered at. An attack was threatened, and he made a hasty exit. The anti-Negroites declare that, uh, the anti-Negro-ites declare that as Decatur is now cleared of Negroes, they will keep it so, and the importation of any more will undoubtedly result in serious trouble. In his research, historian James Lowen counted 507 sundown towns in Illinois alone, representing two-thirds of the towns in the state. Lowen estimates that there were about 10,000 sundown towns in America, making it the dominant form of municipal organization for at least 60 years. These segregated towns were achieved through race riots, lynchings, and legal intimidation. They were maintained by police, courts, contracts, and the real estate industry.
1: In major cities where total expulsion of the black population could not be realistically achieved, wealthy wealthy neighborhoods were maintained as all-white enclaves via restricted covenants, which became ubiquitous across the country. For instance, one such restrictive covenant for a house in Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle had a stipulation that the property, quote, shall never be used or occupied by or sold, conveyed, leased, rented, or given to Negroes of any person or persons of the Negro blood. Another in Laurelhurst neighborhood states, quote, no person of persons of Asiatic African or Negro blood lineage or extraction shall be permitted to occupy a portion of said property or any building thereon except domestic servants may actually and in good faith be employed by white occupants of such premises.
0: It was nice of them to throw that little uh that little sop in there. Uh <laughs> You can't be on the premises unless, of course, you're I mean, of course, servants
1: and some I assume are good people (laughs) in Bellevue a suburb of Seattle a covenant stated quote this said property shall not be resold leased, rented or occupied except to or by persons of the Aryan race uh that last one is from
0: 1947 yeah yeah uh you know, talking about the Aryan race in America was very common in the 30s. For some reason, it became a touch less common after 1945. <laughs> uh, but Bellevue uh, who, will not be
1: defeated. Knew? Yeah, Bellevue. Well, after <laughs> um, the Nazis get their ass kicked, they're like, you know, we're we're still we're still there. We're still doing this. Uh, we're going to be yeah. calling it the Aryan race. God damn, man. None,
0: none of our listeners from the Seattle area are surprised by any of these by the way. yeah yeah <laughs> well
1: my goodness sund-
0: <laughs> sundown towns allowed another avenue for the capitalist class to get white buy-in into the american project can't afford a house well you can steal your neighbors after you expel them it was the project of westward expansion writ small it also spoke to an increasing feeling of fear and panic that the home the heart of the american fantasy was in danger of being overtaken at any time. White residents could work out their anxieties about American capitalism on the black population, a convenient folk devil that could be poked, prodded, and destroyed without ever threatening the status quo. The American home, uh, the American homeowner, as Marx might say, came into this world dripping from head to toe, from every pore, with blood and dirt.
1: I mean, like that's a, that's a good quote. I I, I do like. Um, the idea of Marx, uh, just taking the quote out of context and just saying, as Marx might say, we, I, "I came into this world dripping from head to toe in in, in designer, <laughs> in Ald, in Gucci." Yeah, that's, <laughs> I got the gonna, drip, boy.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that that's gonna be the new way to uh, to like rock on Lefty TikTok. To... Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, new, new TikTok just dropped for sure. Like, uh, watch the space. <laughs> so the thing that is shocking to me about the Sundown Town phenomenon is the extent to which this uh, resegregation was successful and controls how and where people live today. Like, according to census data, um, today, Pierce City is 90% white counting only two black residents. Um that is 198 less black residents than they had in wait for it 1902.
0: Yeah, that's uh that seems like less. A lot
1: less. A L- lot less in the turn of the 20th century, you know. Um yeah. another example Decatur today is over 95% white. With only 117 Black residents making up just one percent of the population. <laughs> cool. <laughs> <I> just.
0: <laughs> well,
1: and that's today, but, but, but Munya. you know. Yeah. But, but
0: Munya, in progressive, that those are those are hillbilly backwaters in Indiana yep. and Missouri, though. On Slave the owners.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Exactly, those are crackers, right? On the progressive yeah. West Coast, though... Be careful, be Seattle, careful.
1: Now you, now you uh, can't be canceled. canceled for saying cracker now. <laughs> Apparently, Twitch is banning people for saying cracker.
0: Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, what can you even say to that? But, <laughs> but in progressive Seattle on the West Coast, I mean, clearly these things haven't maintained themselves as they have in in the Midwest.
1: Well, Brian... I hate to break it to you, but Laurelhurst, the home of former Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, it is also a sundown suburb itself. Um, Laurelhurst has a black population of from a range. I'll just give you a range from zero to one percent somewhere within <laughs> that range. <laughs> depending on like which real estate site you check some might round up some might round down but it's from zero to one percent um yeah yeah
0: i mean interesting that must mean that depending on which one you look at they have either counted zero or one black person i feel yeah, like, yeah yeah, what exactly that i mean that's what, that's
1: what that definitely means <laughs> um the real estate site niche Felt this was good enough to grant the neighborhood a diversity grade of a B minus. <laughs> oh,
0: <no. laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just so fucking funny because, like, a I mean, look, Seattle for re- by the way, everything we've talked about up to this point is why Seattle's as white as it is, right? That's, yeah, this didn't yeah. happen accidentally. But even for Seattle, like, Lorehorse Horse is like the whitest place on the planet. Um, yeah, right. But hilariously like where what diversity of laurel grants the bee like it's also like a neighborhood of purely rich people
1: people <laughs> of know? means
0: like, yeah exactly like <laughs> there's no economic diversity there's no like <laughs> racial diversity i guess they mean that there's like both men and women live there
1: no it means like there's like one like um like eastern european like slavic woman there and yeah. um <laughs> and and one one guy vaguely uh you know, like from like Saudi Arabia and like <laughs>
0: Yeah Or they're just counting all the help like all oh, yeah they or they're the counting on
1: the help oh, I, you know forget the saudi comment that's even like too far it's like people who identify as like a like you know italian
0: and like um yeah. and nordic like there, there's <laughs> no. norwegians oh, there's swedes that's even better that's even better it's all nordic things so it's like all it's very diverse we have we have norwegians <laughs> we got swedes we even got yeah. we even got like finlanders yeah you know?
1: Finns. i mean my <laughs> gosh those people are way different than us on the west of you know <laughs> the nordics
0: they're basically
1: <laughs> russia you know know <laughs> yeah
0: throw in a couple of danes and i mean this yeah is a real you know we got some Reagan. people from
1: copenhagen they have really <laughs> great design chops and you know some icelanders you know those guys are kind of weird but you know we like them we like them equally we're we're a nice community here that is that is <laughs> the diversity
0: yeah, we have everything from six foot two blonde freaks to six foot three blonde freaks.
1: <laughs> yeah, they all, they, uh, you know, they get migraines because the the sun like pops out up maybe fifty percent, and their bl- their blazing blue eyes can't handle the sun rays. So they just like yeah. fucking just like you know like melt down.
0: <laughs> they dress like the vampires and blade or whatever, when they have to go outside during the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, and that's great. I mean, and also, you know, before Ballard was, you know, included in Seattle, um, is, you could just call Ballard a sundown town as well. Um, you know, they basically had a lot of different covenants. And, you know, I, I don't know this for sure. But back when I was in like elementary school, I think it was like the 100th year anniversary of Seattle getting, uh, you know, incorporated into or sorry, Ballard getting incorporated into uh, Seattle. And everyone had, like, these, like, bumper stickers that said Free Ballard, Free Ballard. And, like, you know, um, it was, like, supposed to be, like, a, you know, cool thing. But I'm like, what was it like before (laughs) it was, like, a part of (laughs) Seattle, you know? I don't know. It was, like, a lot of, it was a Nordic fishing kind of town, uh, you know? But apparently it was, like, a sundown town as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I suspect Ballard was just one of the initial suburbs, you know, that people moved out to. And, you know, like, like a lot of suburbs, their whole existence is about segregation, about resegregating. Um, there's a guy, wh- uh, one, I'll, I'll point out, uh, people, if you want to go look into the suggested readings, we'll have a link uh, to the Seattle Civil Rights Project has a collection of these covenants, which is where I pulled these from, that you can go through and read uh, the whole covenants and everything like that. Uh, if you want to take a look at them from the Seattle area. But uh, there's another historian named Thomas Segrui who who wrote a book about uh, the suburbanization in Detroit post-war. And basically the whole thing is how to get the white workers away from the black workers at the GM plants, right? (laughs) And so GM is like actively facilitating suburbanization and facilitating the creation of restrictive covenants to essentially separate their workforce. And then they start to pull the plants out of detroit and just start to move them out to the suburbs right gm having identified the black working class as as they saw as troublesome and the white working mm-hmm. class is more malleable to work with uh which i mean honestly they were fucking right on
1: they're um, right about that yeah i mean yeah you
0: know yeah uh, but yeah I mean this is the the story of sort of American uh, housing and uh, you know just how we live uh, the, the the in the case of Pier City I mean it's interesting I suspect there are many places in America that are contrary to what we might believe today that are uh, more segregated and less diverse than they were a hundred years ago
1: yes you know? and that, I mean like that is a very hard fact to swallow but it's very true is that sundown towns have never, gone away um in fact they uh, have actually continued to thrive they're not even on a decline in a way they've gotten stronger so you know it's not even just like you know like hillbilly neighborhoods it's not just like these you know what you probably see in popular media um you know these like hicks like running people out of town it's not even just like the weird like um you know nordic ethno states of uh laurelhurst right like um (laughs) you could even go to um the tony washington dc suburb of chevy chase maryland it's 90 percent white and only has 37 black residents james Lowen describes how it got that way quote on the ground in chevy chase maryland stands a tangible symbol of this difference between old and newer suburbs, the Saks Fifth Avenue store, looking like a bank surrounded by the green lawns of well-kept suburbia. In 1903, Francis Newlands, who set up the Chevy Chase Land Company to build an elite suburb just northwest of Washington, D.C., sold some land to developers to build a subdivision called Belmont to provide affordable housing for domestics and other workers. Shortly thereafter, according to Washington Post reporter Mark Fisher, not that Mark Fisher, quote, <laughs> he was <laughs> we're not right talking, about everything. Yeah, I know we're not talking about um the TV show Super Nanny today to make our point. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, quote, rumors swept the area that Belmont was to be a community for the suburbs of black servants. Newlands claimed that he had no such intent, and in 1909, his company filed suit, claiming that the developer was committing fraud, quote, by offering to sell lots to Negroes. In the end, Chevy Chase Company reacquired the land, and Chevy Chase became one of our first sundown suburbs. The Belmont property then lay vacant for decades, perhaps tainted by its past. That's why it was available for the Saks Fifth Avenue store and parking lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. So much of the infrastructure of the country is actually is based around these things. You know? Yeah. Uh, and this reorganization of society that comes, you know, essentially to refudia- repudiate uh, reconstruction. You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, right.
0: And that brings us to sort of a, an interesting point, which is the political function of things like violence, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, and the revelations of the Holocaust, liberals were casting about everywhere for an explanation of, like, how Germany, a sophisticated Western European nation of educated libs, could commit such heinous acts of violence. Obviously, they never lived amongst themselves, I guess. Yeah, yeah but, I guess not. Uh, it, you know also i mean the irony of americans wondering how could those people in that country just commit such heinous acts of <laughs> racial violence <laughs> uh in 1950 theodore adorno provided them with an answer with his co-written book the authoritarian personality which argued that they're A, was such thing as an authoritarian personality, uh, and that was linked to an intense desire to preserve hierarchy and rules through violence if necessary. Uh, They then linked this personality type with low education and provincialism, using like IQ and stuff like that to determine Mm. whether you're authoritarian or not, and whether you went to college. That was the big one. Uh, That was how you would get out of the authoritarian uh, personality. Um, You know, sort of ring there but so essentially what adorno was doing was giving the educated and worldly liberal getting them off the hook for the holocaust right that is so <laughs> funny
1: is a- didn't yeah, adorno like- hang out with walter benjamin a lot
0: oh yeah 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 he, Yeah, you know, he's like a frankfurt school guy and, yeah yeah, you know. yeah yeah but uh you know first and foremost he was an academic and this is some yeah. real academic <laughs> bullshit uh, who's at fault for the Holocaust? Uh, well, not me. That's for not sure. Not me. Somebody like, else. step
1: one. Uh,
0: <laughs> Which is hilarious because, one, the German academy were, like, the first ones to, like, declare their allegiance to Nazism. like oh, wow. It, it, it was German colleges were the first to purge Jews from the field, from the occupations, you know. Uh, yeah,
1: like, that's, like, not German surprising. You know, like, I can see, like, the rise of fascism, like, today being very similar, be, coming from, like, this more elite place and not
0: oh yeah and anybody who's ever been on a college campus can tell you uh college professors and college students can talk themselves into the most heinous fucking things Mm -hmm. all the time with little uh with very little effort or anything like that i mean interestingly while adorno's writing this book harvard is busy at work creating fucking napalm to drop on children you know uh right he he wrote this just after uh, all the finest scientists in America and finest research instit- institutions in America created a bomb that could incinerate two hundred thousand people in a second. You know, Jesus. but but yeah, these people don't know about violence. You know that that's just yeah, the poor. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, and that's the thing. I mean, this conception of political violence being the product of an ignorant and superstitious mob it really is the dominant narrative in the social sciences. and has been ever since. Right. I, and it's also exactly wrong. For all the yeah. Reasons I mean, to it.
1: quote Adorno yeah. himself, it is insufficiently dialectical.
0: <laughs> Adorno owned. <laughs> owned. Yeah. Uh, hoisted by his own petard there. And, <laughs> And I mean, the thing to remember about political violence is the political violence is carried out by the state, and the state is run by the people who control society, right? Like millionaires and billionaires are not, you know, impotent or helpless against the state, right? They have lots of power to exert and to make sure the state does what they want it to do, right? It is poor people, (laughs) the people who supposedly are the authoritarians, who are the ones that are at the mercy of this violence. And, you know, Political violence, you know, which makes up the vast majority of violence in any society, is always orchestrated from the top down in order to inflict the rules and boundaries of a political order on a population in a time of disruption or crisis. Essentially, political violence is how the status quo becomes the status quo. And that's the story that we tried to tell today, you know, in what ways we could. Like, the violence of Jim Crow was not southern crackers acting out it was how societies get reformed and reorganized
1: yeah and for people to conform to that right like they it it doesn't just happen it requires a significant amount of violence to discipline people into even you know accepting those terms as true
0: yeah and this is why the lynching is important cuz a lynching is a spectacle Right. It's a spectacle of violence and it's a spectacle of power. And it's one of those things that when everyone is out to go see this. How are you going to oppose that political order? You know, when you see that happen, when you see like what happened to Sam Hose happen or you hear about it or in the case of W.B. Du Bois, he talks about one of his, you know, big like foundational events of his life was when he was young and he used to walk by the store every day that had the knuckles the burnt up knuckles of a man who had been lynched in the store window on display and he would just see it every day as he walked by and when you see that that does something to you (laughs) as a person Mm -hmm. it makes you a lot less likely to resist right because you see what they did to that guy you know imagine what they would do to me obviously human life is cheap To the lawyers and doctors and police and politicians who made up the crowd that carried out the lynching, you know? Yep. And it's a spectacle that even though they killed 10,000 people, the spectacle of violence affects so many people beyond that. That's why in Pierce City, they could go up to the Black neighborhood and just say, leave, and everybody packed their shit and left. You know, I imagine right, what it would right. take to get you out of your house and to pack up everything you own in this world and essentially walk out into a world that there's nothing for you. Like there's no safety net. There's nothing like you're you're just walking into pure poverty. Right. And imagine 200 people making that decision independently, you know, and then leaving within hours of being you know told this. I mean, it has to have been drilled into your head what the consequences of saying no to that would be.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. You
0: know? And, and I think it's important to understand that contrary to what is, you know, frequently discussed, I mean, violence doesn't just happen because people are ignorant. The police don't just kill a thousand people a year because they haven't had the right training videos. Violence is educational. Yeah. That's its function.
1: It's instructive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that's that's totally true. The only way to fight against that, they know what will, uh, you know, topple it. And let me just say it is not a peaceful protest. That is not something that, uh, you know, fights yeah. against that for, you know, change Like, when, when you are up against violence, um, you know, the oppressed has to wield violence in order to topple that. Like, there's no way around that.
0: Well, it's a two way street. I mean, you're not going to teach a billionaire the air of their ways through, uh, you know, perfectly flowered language and arguments and <laughs> structured yeah. argument. The thing is, they get tangible goods from their wealth. Right. And you're not going to convince them to give those up for the intangible good of being a good person. Mm-hmm. Right. hmm. And, you know, in that sense, violence is instructive the other direction, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it is very telling that these spectacles of capitalist violence that we call fascism, that the times they show up are during these periods where things are in flux, you know, in the case of Reconstruction, where things could go either direction, right? And that's why they engage in the violence in that way, right? In the fascism of the 1930s, the interwar years, things are in flux. There's large workers' movements. There's the example of a Soviet state, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And all of that basically convinces the capitalist class, well, it's time to reinstate our will and authority. And the way we do that is through hyperviolence. And the thing is, if you take that history then there is no peaceful path to overcoming capitalism. No. Because the second the capitalist class feels threatened, this is what they do.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think about this a lot because, and you, this is going to be a theme that you're going to hear throughout us covering the 20th century because, um, spoiler alert, uh, both domestically and abroad, there's a lot more violence where that comes from that ultimately shapes our world and one of the big lessons is is that like it's kind of like a tranche like it's a tier thing where you know if you're playing the ruling class at the game and let's just like put this into context that we can all understand and relate to let's just say like electoral politics for instance that is that is a game of the capitalist and ruling class right who um when us working class um the people who aren't in charge of the society are playing in um they will play along with us in that game right if we come to a point where we're actually beating them at that game that means that they can it's not just like they'll throw their hands up and be like oh wow well
0: (laughs) you won fair and square you won fair and
1: square i'll give up all these things i have like, let's say a labor, like, like let's say there's not just the Democrat and Republican party. Let's say that there miraculously is a successful labor party, a socialist or a communist party that gets built that is actually like, you know, threatening power to take over the state in a way that, you know, is very threatening to their both material interests as well as just class interests as a shared class as well um they're not just gonna be oh yeah let's just vote and see who wins um usually if there is a win there's extreme retaliation with violence and you see that a lot that's basically what the cold war actually was um that's how the third world actually got shaped and um that is basically the reaction that you get in any time like if if you beat them one way it's like oh well we'll just kill you then Like I mean, and and uh, and that is the hard truth, and we don't see it because the system has been so, um, you know, perfected where we have never even been a threat to the point where violence has to be used. But when it is, when it actually does become a threat to capital, those rules and systems go out the window, and political violence becomes a disciplinary structure, which is why a lot of Marxists and a lot of third worldists, um, you know, argue of like armed struggle as a means to liberation instead of, um, you know, participating in traditional systems as well. So, which is, which is an, which is an, uh, argument and debate, especially within the 20th century, uh, leading up to decolonization that was very heated between the left and, you know, people on the left, uh, Marxists, social Democrats, um, et cetera, um, a lot of different, you know, opinions and ideologies there but you know we actually now have real if you look back at history and you see who won and who lost i mean yeah the proof is kind of in the pudding
0: yeah i mean it's instructive that i mean this is essentially at the heart of the bolsheviks break from the second international was this idea of like you know oh we can just elect our way to socialism and the bolsheviks saying that's insane like (laughs) why would you even believe that (laughs) and you know one of those groups led a successful revolution and the others got, like, murked in German alleyways, you know? And, you know, I hate to tell you, one of those groups was right, and the other was wrong. Now, you know, it's fun to say that in internet arguments or whatever. The consequences of being wrong in these things, though, is that you get fucking stabbed to death in a German alleyway. Um, And so, it's just one of those... Look, (laughs) history is instructive. All right. I think we've given some examples. Read into it what you will. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And you could imply that to, you know, well. (laughs) Before we get ourselves in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Do do, do with that what you will and there's. (laughs) Apply that analysis to and just (laughs) come to. There you go. Regarding some... So, speaking of crisis, um, I'd like to talk about the use of economic crises to re-entrench capitalism. So, um, another interesting takeaway from this period regards the resilience of capitalism in the face of its own contradictions. Uh, The period from... The period from 1873 to 1914 is called by many historians the long depression. The panic of 1873 was followed by the panic of 1884 and then the more serious panic of 1893 and 1896. These were then followed by panics of 1901
0: and 1907. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of panicking. So, you know, that's like
1: one's whole like working life right there.
0: It's <laughs> just <Yeah>. like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's worth noting. I mean, this is an enormous period of time. I mean, we're talking 40 years. That is like, I mean, life expectancy in america at the time especially if you're in the working class it's like 45 so it's not even like your working life this is like your entire life life. (laughs) (laughs) there's people who lived and died essentially in an endless series of (laughs) horrifying depressions each one worse than the previous yeah yeah
1: right it wasn't getting better it was like just like deepening worse and worse and worse uh misery complete misery yeah Inocuously referred to as the business cycle, these panics had extreme consequences for workers. As historian Richard White describes, As workers came to expect extended layoffs, less frequent in good times, more frequent in bad, they sought remedies. They struggled to keep the wolf from the door. Workers accumulated savings for hard times by putting children out to work, taking in boarders, and cutting consumption. In 1872, for example, Tim Harrington of Newburyport, Massachusetts, put his wife and children out to put his wife and children out to work and brought only the family's flour from his own salary eh, and bought only the family's flour from his own salary, saving the rest. In effect, families like Harrington's mortgage their children's future to create a safety net. All of this amounted to a kind of self insurance against inevitable economic downturns. But unemployment made saving difficult. When they exhausted their savings, workers resorted to extended family and neighbors, and then local merchants and landlords who would advance them credit. Only when these failed would they seek aid, and then reluctantly from churches, charities, Industrial aid societies, unions, and local relief committees. Workers looked for aid only when desperate, received aid only when deemed worthy, and got, at most, a pittance. When all else failed, families broke apart, sometimes temporarily, sometimes permanently. One of the distinguishing characteristics of the American working class was its mobility, but greater physical mobility no longer translated easily into increased social mobility.
0: Yeah. And I, and I like this passage from white because he really highlights, I mean, we could sit here and talk about like what workers wages were. We could talk about how like people actually starved to death in like the 1870s, 80s, 90s, et cetera. Right. But I think he really highlights to the, just like the other effects on your life that you don't necessarily think about when it comes to working. Like, how your family is structured, your relationship itself. Most divorces are over money. Yeah. You know, like, like the capitalist class structures pretty much everything in your life. Even the things you don't think they structure because you didn't do it on company time Mm -hmm. are thoroughly impacted and affected by, you know, the fact that you have to work, you know, sell your labor to live.
1: Yeah. And the mortgage your kids labor to live too.
0: Mm hmm. And
1: And then also your wife working too. And then, you know, that changes, fundamentally changes family dynamics. And this is not me like doing the return with a V thing of like, you know, a return to like, you know, a Western tradition or whatever where man only works. It's like more so that like that relationship structure, regardless, even if like the man is the only one working and and domestic, that's like, you know, that is uh, productive labor away and domestic labor at home, which is where the wife and kids are. Um, that changes uh, dynamics as well. It's the, this, the point. The point of labor itself um, just alters uh, relationships.
0: Yeah, and I mean, it's it's sort of the point of creating all the noise about like, uh, oh, uh, we, we should have trad wives or whatever. Like the point of all the noise of that stupid bullshit is to evade the question of why women had to go back into the workforce, them, you know, anyways, right? Which was yeah. that, that labor was being devalued fundamentally, yep. right? Like, that you were doing the same amount of labor in the case of the 1970s and 80s, producing more wealth
1: mm-hmm.
0: and making even less money, you know? And, uh, you know, whatever you think of the American family structure, that's really just secondary, Yeah, to what's actually happening, which is the economic structure which is creating these problems, right? That you're being fleeced, that the money's being funneled upwards, right? You are getting less and less of the social surplus every day. And the thing about families in America is because this is such a shit fucking country and always has been such a shit fucking country, families for a lot of people is really the only safety net they have. And You know, whatever you think of the structure of the American family, of which, you know, we we've voiced plenty of criticisms on this show before. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't think any of us well, no, Munya, you have a perfect family with the rest of us. Yeah, know, my
1: family's awesome.
0: <laughs> yeah, your family rocks. <laughs> I love but my the rest family. Of us, hey guys. We can take a leave ours. But the thing is, it's like that is the social safety net for large portions of people. And it's a social safety net that is fundamentally undermined and torn to pieces by capitalism itself uh you know it's instructive that when daniel patrick Moynihan wrote you know uh his his fucking report on the black family and you know it's pathologies that forced it <laughs> to poverty which uh-huh. is that black men didn't want to be fathers and all this stuff right you know all the you know, all the shit that bill cosby then made a whole career out of and you yeah. know obama would say you know as president right all this fucking horse shit But Moynihan wrote that in the mid 60s, the like the rate of single black mothers was lower than the rate of single white mothers today. Yeah. Right. And the reason is, is because those single mothers existed for the same reason the 60s that single white mothers exist today, which is the devaluation of labor meant that it didn't economically make sense to keep around your husband or baby's daddy or whatever you want to fucking call them if they're fucking unemployed. It's another fucking mouth to feed, you know? And you already can't afford to feed the ones in the house, you know? And it's like, so capitalism itself creates these fucking crises and then they turn around and they point their finger at you and say there's something wrong with you because of it, you know?
1: Yeah. You just don't yeah. like
0: traditional families. You, yeah, you're, you're, uh, you don't-
1: you're rejecting the traditional family values. You don't like the yeah. nuclear family, and you're actually against it. And just like Richard White said, if you're against the home, you're against America. So it's actually you might as well be against America at that point if you're if yeah. you are you're rejecting the idea of a traditional family. But that's it's created from conditions of capitalism
0: yeah i mean the traditional family itself this whole idea of the nuclear family capitalism created to excuse themselves from having to give you fucking more pay essentially (laughs) like here's a house servant to cook you meals and shit so that we could pay you less right here you know you guys raised the kids to be good workers so we don't have to pay for it all that kind of shit right it was it was an excuse for capital to keep a larger part of the surplus But then when capital got even more greedy and started to destroy the nuclear family, then that that also somehow became, you know, our fault as well, right? And it's, it it is this thing, I mean, as much as people maybe think they realize it, I don't think they fully realize how much capital shapes every aspect of your life.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I bet we have some listeners who are maybe objecting to uh, what we're, uh, you know, what, like, we just implied on saying that, like, you know, a lot of, you know, separations happen from economic conditions, maybe like, oh, yeah, maybe the partner was super shitty or whatever. Maybe, you know, it was like, it's intolerable to be around. Yes, yes. I, I would say that, sure, that could be in some cases. But, you know, I would uh, blow your mind a little bit, if I will, to kind of go anti-Oedipus and say that, um, you know, mental health crises are not necessarily inherent. They are developed mm-hmm. by conditions around. And so, People who suffer from alcoholism suffer from, you know, a a lot of like mental health disorders uh, who are just fucking awful to be around right um those are actually brewed not just from just inherent genetics even though they can be transferred that way but the condition the root condition is from external factors and capitalism actually is the creator of a lot of mental health crises in in america there's no surprise right um and so and one of the books that really dives into that is Anti-Odipus, um which basically uh connects the mental health crisis as a Result of of capitalism and alienation. Um, So yeah, there is that too.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know in his autobiography, Frederick Douglass in describing you know his slave master, basically makes the point. He's like you know in another world in another system, this person had positive qualities, and maybe could have been a different person. He's a monster Mm -hmm. in this one, you know. And basically he's making the argument that we should always make on the left, which is nobody's born with inherent shit. Like, you know, even the worst person, you know, in a different world, in a different society, in a place that valued human life differently, that valued human experience differently. is probably a very different person than the one that you know, you know? Yes. Yeah. And it's like, creating a world where the entire sort of ethos of the system is individualism dog eat dog fuck over anybody to survive it's not shocking that people have bad relationships with each other yep it's not a good recipe for like good human (laughs) contact you know
1: yeah yeah
0: well well unfortunately that was how these crises treated workers yep (laughs) how they treat the capitalist class
1: yeah yeah let's talk about that so um capitalists saw these panics as opportunities they just took the optimistic approach you know they have the growth (laughs) mindset to you know see the glass half full
0: They were like, all my losses are lessons, you know? Yeah, yeah. This is
1: a learning, a teaching moment for us. Um, (laughs) um, As Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon said on the eve of the Great Depression, quote, in a depression, assets return to their rightful owners. (laughs) And capitalists (laughs) use the Long Depression to drive down wages and pad their own pockets. This is made all the more grotesque by the role that individual capitalists would play in bringing these crises about. Um, Take for example, uh, Jay Cook and Credit Mobilier. Um, Credit Mobilier was a construction and finance company that helped to finance the Union Pacific Railway. it was also a shell company owned by Union Pacific that was used <laughs> for funneling profits and handing out inflated stock to politicians, too. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> it was
0: a giant con? Yeah. <laughs> this is surprising.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, it is pretty crazy. Uh, so Richard White notes, uh, quote, the railroads had come to Congress offering stocks, bonds, and land and politicians had swarmed like flies. The men running the Union Pacific had sold stock in Credit Mobilier, a construction and finance company used to funnel profits to the insiders at below market prices to influential politicians. The scandal implicated the leadership of the Union Pacific Railroad, including Congressman Oakes Ames and it snared Schuller the sitting vice president of the United States. Congressman James A. Garfield, James G. Blaine, the Speaker of the House, and a bevy of leading senators and representatives. Some would be ruined. Most would only be tainted. It took a heavy load of scandal to sink a Gilded Age politician.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, cool. And, you know, I mean – this became like a big scandal because of the press reporting about it at the time. Uh, it was just is a story that went viral, if you will. Yeah, uh, it, broke, it, it broke it broke the printing press. <laughs> yeah, to use the humble <laughs> language of today. <laughs> um, but I, uh, this is bog standard bullshit for yeah, just,
1: media just <laughs> liked the story but this is nothing like this was business yeah. as usual which is probably why they were shocked that this was even happening because it was like "What? why are you guys latching on to this one you know <laughs> like yeah
0: i will say if you want to if you want to have a fun experience uh go into either Richard White's Railroaded or the Republic for which it stands and look up how he treats Ames Oaks and Ames Oaks, like, responses to all these things. It's so funny. Like, Ames Oaks is just like, me, Ames Oaks? I'm just committing crimes. What's the problem?
1: I just have a manila envelope stamped with the word crimes on it and it's stacked to the brim and I carry it around one, with me.
0: At one point in his own defense, he basically says, uh, you know who can fault like a congressman for you know getting a stake and like purchasing a road or whatever and then he compares that he's like you know if you're gonna fault me for that you would fault me and then just list another obvious crime <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you would fault, if you're gonna fault gotcha. me for insider trading in this situation well then you'd have to fault me for insider trading in every situation you'd have to fault Jack me for bribery
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> Just hilarious. You would
1: have to fault me for securities fraud.
0: <laughs> yeah, he basically was like, come on, guys. There's got to be a little bribery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's not get ridiculous now. <laughs> Things they would just say in public to give yeah. you a, a, a feel for the time.
1: <laughs> After the scandal broke, Jay Cook of the Northern Pacific found himself searching for investors. But, as White notes, quote, the credit Mobilier affair made further subsidies unlikely and bond guarantees unimaginable. Only the most trusting and desperate would invest in railroads that insiders plundered, unless, of course, they plan to become plunderers, too.
0: <laughs> Guys, I think yeah. the game might be up. Yeah. Don't worry, it'll <laughs> go on for decades. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: You know, we got a long <laughs> runway here. So... Faced with this problem, Cook sets his eyes on the Reconstruction Bank, which his brother sat on the board of. And contrary to popular belief at the time, the Reconstruction Bank was not something that the federal government set up. This is just a private bank. This is just as if just bankers created a bank and named it Reconstruction Bank. Mm-hmm. Um
0: yeah, it had a charter with the federal government, right? Which yeah. is, you know, what people I think what people mean, you know. But that's yeah. <laughs> that does not mean the federal government uh can step in. Runs <laughs> the
1: bank, right. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um and to that point, uh and to that point the bank had been deregulated in 1870 allowing it to engage in more speculative and risky investments. So it used to be like a credit bank and they just turned it into an investment bank. You know, it's like, if, uh, it's like a BCU just like turned into like Goldman Sachs or something.
0: Or if it was like, uh, I don't know, name any bank from 2008 caught up (laughs) in the 2008 bank crash was turned into what it became. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. it's shocking going through some of the stuff To just be like oh we just keep doing this Over and over again like this is the only Move capital has yeah right? I guess I
1: don't Even have to have an absurdist thing of like this Like local credit union turning into like a big yeah. Like investment bank because we literally had Like you know like Washington Mutual and Like all of these other you know yeah. like d- depositing banks that also just like happen to be investment banks too like you know uh JP Morgan Chase Bank of America all of those things both take in you know deposits and also engage in like you know serious like investments as well so yeah 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 there's that by 1872 Cook was furiously dumping his junk liquid assets from Northern Pacific onto the Friedman's Bank so he was using those liquid assets as collateral in exchange for over half a million dollars in loans from the bank and just for some perspective that half a million dollars in that time is equal to 11.4 million dollars today
0: yeah and so and basically i mean just to be absolutely clear jay cook is going to his brother and saying hey there's a lot of red on my rolls for all this shit that's worth nothing Give me money, and then just write that shit down on your rolls. Yeah, <laughs> as the collateral. So essentially, he's exchanging garbage from his railroad road in exchange for the savings of these freed slaves. Right? Yeah, because well, the savings.
1: majority, the basically all of these, uh, you know, clients of the Freedmen's Bank are freed slaves, are newly freed slaves who are saving money. Um, so. Yeah, it's just like it's essentially it's a win-win in a way because you're getting to for cook because you're getting to basically take your shitty assets that no one wants and no one would ever buy and essentially get get a guaranteed buyer in exchange for loans that you probably don't really have to pay back yeah. because what the fuck are they going to do? You know? Um yeah, so exactly. it's it's essentially getting an effective bailout from these freed slaves who are depositing yeah. their money and trusting it into them. Yeah, and W.B. Du Bois describes what happened, and I like this passage. Soon, the speculators of Washington were attracted by the assets of the bank and discovered how they were growing. These assets were, however, amply protected by provisions requiring investment mainly in government bonds. An amendment to the charter was introduced into Congress in 1870 – which provided that one half of the deposits invested in the United States bonds might be invested in other notes and bonds secured by real estate mortgages. Cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: Again, I mean, just comically exactly what happened in 1998, <laughs> 99 when Clinton de- deregulated banking, but yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Dodd-Frank, right? Yeah. Yeah. Immediately, the pennies of poor black laborers were replaced by worthless notes. Money was loaned recklessly to speculators in the District of Columbia. J. Cook and Company, the great bankers, borrowed half a million dollars, and this company and the First National Bank of Washington controlled the Freedmen's Bank between 1870 and 1873. Runs were started on the bank, and then an effort was made to unload the whole thing on Frederick Douglass as a representative Negro.
0: And so, yeah, and again, just to be clear, right here, as the bank is clearly tanking, and everybody internally knows that uh, the money's gone, it's all been stolen. No. they basically were like, hey, Fred Doug, uh, want to be the first black banker? Yeah. <laughs> like, tried to put him in charge of it. They basically that, uh, then tried to frame up the most famous like black American.
1: Jesus, man! In
0: world. <laughs> Incredible.
1: The most photographed man of the 19th century. Yeah. Period. Like, uh, of everyone, the- not just of black people, of everyone.
0: He was the most famous and requested public speaker of the 19th century. I mean, yeah. it's it's impossible to understand, like, how famous Frederick Douglass was from a current perspective. Um, and, yeah, they were just totally going to fuck him. Like, intentionally going to fuck him. <laughs> um,
1: so, yeah, I mean, that... Move was useless, and the bank finally closed in June of 1874. The commission of three, which liquidated the Freedman Savings Bank, paid depositors 30% and charged for their services of $318,753. It's so they just had to charge on on the way out and uh yeah. So yeah, yeah, the people who liquidated the bank charged a fee of of that yeah. amount of over three hundred thousand dollars.
0: This is uh, McConaughey and Wolf of Wall Street, where he's like stocks up, stocks go down, nobody fucking knows. He's like, oh, but what we do is we take a commission. Yeah, <laughs> they buy Literally. stocks, we take a little bit of money. They sell stocks, <laughs> we take a little bit of money. Take a little bit of money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is that. Um. At the date of closing, so far as is known, there was due to depositors two million nine hundred ninety-three thousand seven hundred ninety dollars and sixty-eight cents in sixty-one thousand one hundred forty-four accounts. This was never paid. The assets amounted to just thirty-two thousand and eighty-nine dollars and thirty-five cents. The rest was represented by personal loans and loans on real estate, which were practically uncollectible. Incredible. This bank had $50 million in assets before. like They had $50 million in deposits uh, from freed slaves at this point.
0: It's an astonishing story in the sense that it was amazing that freed people could Collect this amount in savings in the first place. That's what then, really
1: was eye popping to me was like, yeah. wow, already, you know?
0: And then it was just flat stolen. And, you know, I mean, there is this thing in America that whenever a crisis happens, you know, and poor people get wiped out, they'll look at the black community or they'll look at poor people and they'll say, oh, well, they're just superstitious and like don't trust banks for some reason because they're idiots or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I wonder if there's, like, a weird history around yeah. just getting fucking fleeced by these people. Outwardly. That you suspicious. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible.
1: Yeah. And, fuck, I mean, I wish I knew this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure this is the biggest demolition, a single event of, like, demolition of black wealth um, mm. in the States until 2008. Yep. Under Obama.
0: Yep. He basically, his destruction of black wealth, again, at the behest of the banks who just stole all that fucking money. And essentially, they did exactly what Jay Cook was trying to do right here, which is they took all that red ink in their fucking book and they just took all this black wealth and said, ah, here we go. Just give them the mm. red ink. Yep. <laughs> you know, take their houses away, throw them on the street, you know, turn them into renters, do whatever, right? And it's, you know, it's grotesque. I mean, it's grotesque. There's no other way to describe it. These, by the way, were all cultured, worldly, college-educated people. I guess they didn't realize that they weren't supposed to be authoritarian.
1: Yeah. Oh, oops.
0: Whoops. Made made a mistake again. (laughs) Better luck next time.
1: Yeah. I mean, even after looting the life savings of newly freed slaves, uh, Cook could not keep his empire afloat. And he closed his doors in 1873, and that is what the act uh, that set off the panic of 1873 was, and it launched a long depression. So after all of that, it fucking still went down. I mean, like, yeah. what What an incredible waste all around. I mean, it's, it's yeah. so that, – that is just tragic, man.
0: Yeah, he just looted the savings of <laughs> newly freed slaves and then lost it all yep you know i mean it, it's it's incredible and the thing is is that yeah that, that like kind of i mean this wasn't like jay cook was living poor after that i kind of fucked him over but like just another guy took his place you know always mm-hmm. just another person mm-hmm. steps in and and this is the thing about capitalism that sometimes people don't understand is that capitalism crises are part of capitalism like it's it's inherent it's embedded into the structure of capitalism and capitalism doesn't go away when a crisis happens individual capitalists might but yep. capitalism um, stays and what tends to happen is during the crisis is the savings the assets of the working class just get redistributed upwards at an even more furious pace than they were previously
1: yeah, it's essentially the savings account of of the capitalist class in a, in a kind of twisted way, right? It's like the reserves is, is basically like in modern in modern theory it's like the government's reserves and the working class's reserves which are, you know, both kind of like intertwined in a lot of ways too. Yeah. And yeah, I mean like we I think we do have this sense of the sci-fi sense of collapse and how like, you know, oh, because the contradiction of capitalism has reached a crisis point, that means that society will crumble and therefore we will like <laughs> then just like, you know, build anew from the ashes. Right. Like that is kind of the theory. But this is like actually super beneficial. Look no further. Look back a year ago. Capitalists were mm-hmm. salivating at the idea of COVID. I mean, like many people thought that COVID would completely like obliterate capitalism and usher in this new social democratic era, you know, in the world because, you know, you just can't function. It's like, no, I mean, like this uh, crises in capitalism are an extreme boon to, uh, to capital itself, right? I mean, you can actually fundamentally change conditions and expectations of people that you could not do before. And I think that that is like really valuable to understand. So um, COVID is in a way for the capitalism ruling class in general um, to essentially change behaviors and expectations of the general populace and the working class that would ultimately be very hard to change before stuff that they'd want to push in a direction that was facing resistance can now really just fit in with ease right it is exploiting crisis and opportunity to ultimately advance what what has been already brewing for a while right um the uh you know an obvious example is like the um you know automation of like remote work right um that is that is something that uh has been facing a lot of resistance even like from you know capital but and it's been a trend that's been going on but that crisis accelerated that trend and it's an acceleration trend um another part is about just like a labor relations right like you know how how do we actually um how they hire and you know how ha- wield more control over workers during during times of crisis right all of these kind of like And this is to say nothing about the actual bills Mm -hmm. that were passed that were giving like huge subsidies to, to them. Like, this is just like pure, like, you know, accelerating different trends and like, sure, like, you know, working from home is like, you know, fine. But during COVID too, all of these things in crisis are, you know, like, um, people are online more cloud computing Mm -hmm. companies like completely go through the roof. Um, consumption in general, consumer consumption hasn't been higher than it ever has been before because the actual, what? this crisis has done to us like this, like kind of, you know, scarce, scarcely felt um, precarity in a lot of ways um, is like kind of like reminding us like, Holy shit. Like, you know, we only have, you know, one life. We got to like bounce back from basically not being able to do anything. Um, you know, the leverage an employer has over if you can afford life-saving medicine or if you're, you know uh, you know, relative is in the ICU and you have employer insurance, um, that is like direct leverage over that um you know employee uh if you lo- if you leave you're going to be stranded mm-hmm. in a pandemic without any aid without any you know uh, insurance at all so all of that to say is that like there is real exploitation in crises that are not necessarily deemed the end but are by design to consolidate power um in the system
0: yeah and i think the the thing to take away here is that part of the resilience of capitalism is that minus a countervailing force uh there's nothing to just keep capital from redistributing amongst themselves society's resources in a crisis right uh and the reason is is that they control the levers of power the state etc so they decide where resources go and obviously they're going to redirect them to themselves and it's Important to remember that. I mean, the COVID thing's such a good example because I mean, just as a base element, you know, we were here in the middle of an unprecedented epidemic, right? Pandemic that was happening, uh, killed. I mean, now eight hundred thousand people in this fucking country, and because we don't have any like cohesive countervailing force to push back against Capital America. We had an entire political party that ran on a campaign of we will not provide healthcare to you in this crisis. Like that that was the entire Biden campaign. That was the only like coherent thought they had was that healthcare would not be extended in the middle of a public health crisis. And you know, I what can you say to that other than that like you have no say in what's happening and the reason is that uh voting isn't a say. You have to have like an actual like political project that is opposing it, you know? Um so why don't we close out on that sunny note right there? Uh we want to leave you once again with the man, the legend, W.B. E. Du Bois, and his thoughts on the counter revolution that was launched in eighteen seventy six.
1: God wept but that mattered little to an unbelieving age. What mattered most was that the world wept and is still weeping and blind with tears and blood. For there began to rise in America in 1876 a new capitalism and a new enslavement of labor. Home labor in cultured lands, appeased and misled by a ballot whose power the dictatorship of vast capital strictly curtailed Was bribed by high wage and political office to unite in exploitation of white, yellow, brown, and black labor in less lands and breeds without law. Especially workers of the New World, folks who were American and for whom America was, became ashamed of their destiny. Sons of Ditch Diggers, aspired to be spawn of bastard kings and thieving aristocrats rather than of rough-handed children of dirt and toil. The immense profit from this new exploitation and worldwide commerce enabled a guild of millionaires to engage the greatest engineers, the wisest men of science, as well as pay high wage to the more intelligent labor, and at the same time to have left enough surplus to make more throughout the dictatorship of capital. Over this date and over the popular vote not only in Europe and America but in Asia and Africa the world wept because within the exploiting group of new world masters greed and jealousy became so fierce that they fought for trade and the markets and materials and slaves and all over the world until the last and all over the world until at last in 1914 the world flamed in war The fantastic structure fell, leaving grotesque profits and poverty, plenty and starvation, empire and democracy, staring at each other across world depression. And the rebuilding, whether it comes now or a century later, will and must go back to the basic principles of Reconstruction in the United States during 1867 through 1876. Land, light, and leading for slaves, black, brown, yellow, and white. Under a Dictatorship of the Proletariat.
0: All right. Well, next episode, uh, we're going to take up part two of this. And I got to tell you, I don't know that it's going to be any less grim than part one was. Uh, We're going to pick that up in two weeks because this week is Christmas time. Yes, when retail companies go from being in the red to in the black, right? Um, Capitalism must be saved, guys. Go spend that money. If you're lucky, and if you're good little freaks, maybe Mooney and I will leave a little present in your stocking this coming Sunday, all right? So keep an eye out, and uh, we'll see you all next time.
1: The money's not to deal, the cows not to deal, is freedom and liberty and access to a land Get rid of this abusive government. It's free real estate. el peor legado de la